Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas at the intersection of technology and democracy. This morning's show comes in two segments. First, we'll consider Facebook's response to an Australian law that would compel search and social media platforms to pay news organizations for linking to their content. While Google has decided to comply with the law and is doing deals with major companies such as News Corp, Nine, and Seven West Media, Facebook decided to take the other route. Rather than pay for news to appear on its platform, the social media giant blocked Australian users from accessing and sharing news entirely. Hours after Facebook took this drastic action, I spoke with Chris Sapone, digital foreign editor at Australia's The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, about the news and what it might mean for the future of the relationship between Facebook and journalism, in Australia and in the rest of the world. Second, we'll listen in on a panel discussion on free speech in the digital age, hosted by Betaworks Studios as part of its Betalab Fix the Internet program, which you can learn more about at betaworks-studios.com slash betalab. But let's turn our attention now to the situation down under. Here's Chris. I'm Chris Sapone. I'm the digital foreign editor at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, and I'm based in Victoria, so just outside of Melbourne. And I have been following the, what's happened with Facebook basically since 2016, with this sort of historic Russian meddling in the U.S. election, and then the, the issue and the debate about regulation of Facebook. So obviously, Australia has sort of made itself, it, it sort of stood out from the crowd in promoting a, or pursuing uh, some sort of regulation of Facebook. Uh, today, this morning, we woke up to the news that Facebook has basically pulled the plug on Australian media being posted on the on the platform. And so that means not only can we not post it, but our media cannot be seen elsewhere around the world on Facebook. So it's sort of like waking up and realizing that the, you know, the electric company has turned off your power. Facebook has warned about this, and I think people are, are surprised that they've done this. Uh, but the legislation that is close to being passed here in Australia was of enough concern that the head of Facebook was in touch with the, with the government here, with the treasurer and the prime minister. So this is something that is not, I mean, this is something that's very much they're aware of and they're, they're sensitive to. So the reactions I'm seeing here in the States, you know, range from the kind of Rupert Murdoch um, didn't get his way. This is sort of the result of, of that fight uh, on through to folks who basically are, are unbelievably are sort of upset that, that essentially Facebook has, you know, uh, refused to work with a democratically elected government uh, on this issue. Um, what's the spectrum of argument about this there? Well, I think people, I mean, I, for full disclosure, I work in the, uh, for a media company that has historically been a rival to News Corp and Rupert Murdoch. Um, so I think that there is a view that's been promoted that basically anybody who supports this legis legislation is doing Rupert Murdoch's bidding, but that's not the view here. The view here is very much like it is in the United States or any other open democracy uh, where news is produced, it costs to produce news. There are certain norms and, and understandings that you produce news under, and then Facebook has a completely different sort of way of operating. Facebook operates by completely different rules uh, and they basically can take advantage of the content that we're generating because it helps turn over keeping the, the offerings on the Facebook platform fresh uh, without actually having to, to underwrite any of the costs. So I think the view in Australia is, and it has been all along, that it's a very unequal proposition. And we've seen in our in our media sector how the the profits have just have narrow you know have really dropped to to just a fraction of what they had been say 20 years ago, and obviously the internet has had some role in that, but then social media has been the real accelerant, and so that is the idea I think behind the legislation. It really is about a bargaining code, uh, trying to uh, create a situation where the media companies here have the ability to bargain with the social media companies that have a huge influence 
not just on what people see, but on the way that ads are bought and the ad market and and everything, you know, everything in the sort of soup to nuts in the uh, experience of a, a news consumer. And so this was um, the Australian government's um, way of recapitalizing journalism or, or trying to uh, push more capital back towards journalism. Is it thought that, that this recourse w- would have or will, you know, assuming that, that, that Google pays the piper and, uh, you know, it works out to some extent, um, that it will work for news organizations of, of, of all sizes? Or is this a bandage for larger news organizations primarily? That's another argument we're hearing here. Right. I mean, th- that is one criticism that the larger uh, organizations, that it will entrench their power. But the reality is, and, and there may be some merit to that because the smaller ones have to fend on their own. They probably, you know, at this point, Facebook and Google are very keen to make, to strike individual deals with the media outlets. And in fact, the, the Australian Consumer Competition Commission has encouraged this because they don't want to have to force the social media platforms you know, into this sort of mandated situation. But the reality is, if we can't have any sort of news, even of a large scale, then, it's, it's, then democracy is going to struggle. And it's also worth putting this in context. When you look at the size of companies uh, in Australia and media companies in Australia, they are you know, by global standards, not that large. And in the Australian market, I mean, mind you, this is a, this is a, a, it's a, it's a robust and a developed economy, but it's a population of about 26 million people. So it's not huge. I, I think that at the heart of it with the legislation, Australia is doing what other uh, jurisdictions would like to do. And Australia is just pre- pressing ahead to do it. And I think that that is why there's so much pushback from Silicon Valley. Because they know that if they can make this workable here, then it, you know, then this could potentially serve as a model for regulation elsewhere. And it's not—I mean, it's not draconian what they're asking here. They—they they want to just ensure that there is some flow back in the in the the funds that are generated through the the um, creation of this content. And as you know, and I think I've seen you comment before. I mean, the, what happens on social media? The amount of distortion and untruths becomes a sort of tax for the for the traditional media and we operate under very different and much more strict rules than the social media platforms do so there is a there's a real imbalance in what's expected from the varying sectors so this is a this is an attempt to sort of even that up and and it's also probably worth noting that as far as the pressure that the australian government may feel if anything this is the same government that has had a lot of experience the past few years encountering the pressure from another behemoth out there, which is China. So there's, a, there's been a lot of trade tensions, a lot of reprisals from China for things that, uh, that Australia has done in the political sphere. And Australia has pretty consistently pushed back where, where it should. And so I feel like we're seeing a, a, an echo of that, but more in the, in the private sector around this issue, not even so much of accuracy and in information, but the ability for the media sector to have some some leverage in bargaining. Do you think that this is pushing the point? Is this going to, I don't know, cause some kind of reckoning? Well, I mean, I, I think what it's, what's going to happen is it's going to train people to look for news at vetted news sites. So if you want news in Australia and you're in Australia or even outside of Australia, you're going to have to go to the news sites. You can't rely on having it served up on social media or on Facebook. And I think that that could actually be incredibly valuable because the, a many-to-many platform like Facebook is just not a suitable place for people to, tr- to get an ordered understanding of what's going on in the world. I mean, I think that that's the thing that we've learned over the past five years. You can't have this sort of crowdsourced vision of what is happening when you get to vote on what is true and what is not. There has to be a place where that is actually being, uh, you know, where it's professionally reported. Essentially, if you and I are in a Facebook group in Australia and we're having an argument about, you know, a political issue, you say, well, you know, check out this 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 piece of of information that this newspaper surfaced. Um, You can't post it there. So there won't be any recourse to to fact in that context. That's right. But but I think very soon it becomes if you saw it on Facebook and it's news, you can immediately downgrade it in terms of credibility. I, I don't want to exaggerate, 
obviously it's very early days. This just happened, but yeah, it's possible that what this does is train the public to not look to social media for news. And I can't, you know, after the events of the past five years, I can't help but see that as a potentially positive outcome. So we can still have social media. I can be on social media with you and you and I can argue about what our favorite movie is. It's fine. But we don't get to have this loopy argument about what political reality is, where I can overwhelm you and bombard you with more information than you can possibly reply to. You can send me links, chip away at my trust at, at facts that I thought were you know, that were sound um, and then, and create, you know, this sort of unreality this way. So when you get on Facebook and you see the anti-vax people, then you know, okay, that's, that's Looney Tunes and that belongs on social media. But for the real news, we go to real, real news sites. It, it's early days. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. An interesting thought that, that, that people may just sort of decide that all political discussion on Facebook is, is essentially unsubstantiated. I mean, that's, that's, that's an optimistic point of view when the other would be that there's still political advertising there's still political discourse there's still plenty of people post you know posting what they say is news even if they are not news purveyors um and that you've essentially kind of taken the the professionals out of the room but then in an australian context facebook has to explain what service it is providing so it allows people to connect and they can connect and share what only unvetted political information or only personal anecdote, but you can never have news enter into it. I, I think that it, it just would make society, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see, because remember too, we have not just, so not just Nine, which owns uh, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and not just News Corp, but we also have a publicly funded broadcaster here, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, like the BBC. It's much better funded than PBS in the US, for example. And so that's a baseline news source that people can go to. And it's around the country, even in you know, rural areas. So suddenly the, the pyramid of people's news sources may change because of Facebook. Um, and and it, this removes a lot of the sources that are dubious. So I guess that's the, that's the thing is that this may change people's behaviors um, in the days ahead. And, and maybe, maybe that offers opportunity. For, for news organizations that, that can take advantage of those new behaviors. Is there any sense that folks may relent or that Facebook may relent? My understanding, well, this morning, the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, said that they're still in touch with Facebook. So there is, um, there is a, a sense that the conversation is, or negotiations are still ongoing. And just recently, the, uh, Google had worked out an agreement with my employer, with Nine. Uh, and they'd also worked out an agreement with uh, News Corp. So I think there is this sort of hope or expectation that these individual bilateral agreements can be put together. But, but again, I mean, that, that involves quite a bit of complexity as well. So I, I don't know. It's, it's not clear if the government, I mean, if the public here, if there's outcry, potentially the government could relent. It could go the other way around where policymakers here realize that they have this sort of port from other, other sources and other corners outside of Australia that are watching this closely and they know that when the time comes, that they will be seen as vindicated and justified for what they've done. So that's possible as well. Maybe there'll be maybe there'll be some sort of compromise in some in some way where certain I don't know certain types of news are passed through for issues of public safety. Uh, you know, the idea that you could, you're on Facebook now and your information about coronavirus is only going to come from non-official sort of or I should say non-official. It's only going to come from non-news sites. I mean, that that's pretty alarming during a pandemic. So, so that could change things as well. There could be a certain dimension of decision-making that wasn't you know, fully worked out on, on both sides when, when this decision was made to proceed with the legislation, but also for Facebook to, to uh, block Australian news content. So it is, I mean, it is early days and this could change again. I mean, I, I don't want to sound overly confident that, that it's all going to work out. It could be, yeah. um, you know, this could be a disaster just about to, but I, I just I do feel that we live in this time of such information overload that anything that orients the mind that says look for facts of this sort here don't look for them over here I, I think that people need that I think that mm -hmm. that's what we used to have you know 30 40 years ago with all the failures of media at that time there was a place to go for news and then there's a place to to not go for news and I think this idea that we just have it coming in at every different angle at all times it makes it hard sometimes to to actually 
form a, a, a sort of workable uh, view of what is political reality or, or what is reality. So mm-hmm. this could change very quickly again. Well, I'm grateful for you taking the time to talk to me about it. In the days of 18 and one, hey, you know. Next up, we turn to a discussion hosted by Yael Eisenstadt, researcher in residence at Beta Lab, an early stage investment program for startups aiming to fix the internet that is run in partnership with Lupa Systems. Yael has spent her career at the intersection of technology, democracy, and policy, including as a CIA officer, a White House advisor, the global head of elections integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook, as a diplomat, a corporate social responsibility strategist, and the head of a global risk firm. I got to know her well when she was a fellow at Cornell Tech, and we taught a course on technology, media, and democracy together with students from across New York City. Yael is joined by David Kay, a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression, along with Nora Benavides, the director of U.S. free expression programs at PEN America, where she guides PEN America's national advocacy agenda on First Amendment and free expression issues. Here's Yael. You know, over the past few years, and and particularly at the end of the Trump presidency, this question of what constitutes free speech online has really become part of this mainstream conversation. But before we get into some of the nitty gritty and some of the more detailed questions I have, I kind of want to start with a broad question for each of you. Um, So so separate from the larger question of the ramifications of the decisions to deplatform someone like Trump, the move in general for a company like Facebook or Twitter to deplatform a world leader. Do you consider this censorship? Do you consider this a free speech issue? So the broad overview of sort of, can you explain why you do or don't? And, and why don't we start with Nora? Sure. Thanks, Yael. Um, I went back through my own tweets and I was like, how did Yael find something from May of 2020? Um, what did I say? I, I guess I have to stand behind it. Um, but, you know, probably one of my many rants. Um, it's great to be here with you guys. And it's great to kick off the series. I, you know, I think these are the hardest questions, um, the most foundational ones of what are the tensions between things like free speech, people talking together, communicating, and then what platforms do. Um, I am unequivocal in being pleased to see that Twitter and other platforms remove Trump. I think that um, you know there is a tendency to love, uh, to hate the platforms, but I was pleased to see this uh, despite it being what felt like too little too late. Um, the tweet that you pulled up you know, was me on a Friday evening rant when people talked about being angry that this was censorship, that a world leader being removed from Twitter was a violation of the First Amendment. And so you know, my background as, as a lawyer, uh, I just couldn't help but want to educate people and say, well, hold on, we can get into the debate about how important his voice is if we want to, but at base, there is no First Amendment or free speech issue when a private company removes an individual. That is not the First Amendment. Um, The First Amendment protects basic freedoms for all of us to engage and that the government cannot violate that. So I I often try to just sort of explain with people that these private companies are not the government. And that means that the various laws we think about are not applicable here. The First Amendment is not applicable. I think there are legitimate questions. um, And I'm curious to hear David's more international thoughts on the free expression implications. When at times I think it's valuable for um, communities and users to see what leaders have to say. But there is a kind of deference that we give and that I think we have given to Donald Trump um, that ran too long. And um, however important it is to have that unfettered access to him and his own opinions, um, we have to find mitigating ways to, you know, limit the harm that he causes. So, David, almost the same question, um, but since you do have a, a more global lens on the issues, you know, one of the criticisms of removing Trump that, I've, or, I mean, I've said it myself as well, is that 
other governments around the world might use the same excuses to then try to stifle opposition. But, you know, I just would point out it's not the U.S. government who told Facebook to remove Trump. It was a Facebook or a Twitter decision. Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts just on the broader question as well, both in the U.S. and with the global lens. I, I agree with everything that Nora just said. But I would also add to that that even though this isn't, this isn't a question of censorship, it's not a question of a First Amendment violation, I tend to think about the platforms, you know, yes, as a speaker with First Amendment rights, but also as, as entities, as companies that have massive impact on human rights. They, they simply have a massive impact on the information space, right? They have an impact on, uh, on the reach of our speech. They have an impact on what people see. And because of that, I think they have some, some fundamental responsibilities. We don't have to say that they're responsible in the same way that governments are responsible, but they do have to be mindful of the kind of impact that they have on, you know, on, on public speech and on other rights. Facebook, or at least Mark Zuckerberg, when he's talked about free speech, he's made it sound as, it, as if it's only a question of what the speaker can say. But of course, you know, human rights law, and that's my bailiwick, basically, human rights law talks not just about Congress shall make no law, which is the First Amendment rule, but it's also that everyone enjoys the right not only to impart information, but to seek and receive it. And so from a human rights law standpoint, freedom of expression isn't only about the speaker, it's also about the audience and the rights of others and the ability to have space to express oneself. So that's just a long way of saying globally, the platforms have to be thinking, what's our impact on these different environments? The impact um, around the world is actually much more significant than it is in the United States. Because oftentimes, you know, Facebook is the internet or YouTube is driving conversation. And so, you know, from my perspective, these are big questions of freedom of speech, but they're not necessarily questions of censorship or of government control. We can separate two things out. One is the power that the platforms have to, to sort of moderate content, to create an information environment. And the separate question is, what are governments doing to repress expression on the platforms? Those are two different things. And you know, part of thinking about this through using democratic or human rights principles is separating those things out, but also seeing how they interact with one another. So Nora, picking up a little bit more now on the social media lens in particular. So just speak, this sounds like a bit of a softball question, but I think it's fundamental. How do you actually view what speech is on social media? Whether, I mean, like we should look at Facebook and Twitter because they're the two biggest right now. How, how do you view what free speech means on those platforms? Of course, the big question is, is there a differentiation between what we view as free speech and what speech actually is on social media? Well, it's a great question. And I think one thing for us to keep in mind from the outside is how emotional our reactions are to information now that you know, people will so often claim that they have a free speech right to something, mainly online. I often think it's important that we slow down and, and sort of question why we're so emotional, why the presence of anger or inspiration um, makes us feel like we have a right to something. And so that's sort of the framing mindset I have when I think about what's happening in the digital age now, because the internet has opened up space for all of us to come together. Um, you and I can chat, right, on Facebook. We can send each other messages and we each have the right to say publicly on our own Facebook page what we would like, what our opinions are. Um, if you say something offensive and I see it, I, on the one hand, have the opportunity to access that, as David has said. We also have the opportunity to react and respond. Um, and what's interesting is that platforms, again, I, I hope it doesn't seem too foundational, but it's good to kind of talk through all of this, is that, you know, platforms are, they're intermediaries. They've opened up space for all of us to speak or to hear things. And so a question is, 
is that like a sidewalk when you and I come together and hang out literally on the sidewalk? Um, is that like going to a park or a library? You know, what are sort of the standards around how we regulate what each of us can do when we're online? It's a totally different feeling, you know, when we're together in a forum versus when we're standing on the sidewalk in public. And I think often people have this sense that um, what they do online exists in the ecosystem they live in. Um, so we have become more emotional, more uh, interested in the inflammatory. And when I think about free speech online, if we want to call it free speech, there are all kinds of ways now that content, whether it is images, uh, opinions, other types of posts, those can range from offensive to illegal. And there is such a wide way to categorize what speech looks like. And I think the question we're all coming up with now is, you know, how do we find appropriate mechanisms to limit speech when it has very serious harms in, real, in the real world? Um, that connection between the online world and offline consequences is one that isn't just a digital problem. It is a human problem. And of course, we're asking people like everyone attending here to combat human nature issues. And I think that's a really difficult nut to crack. You know, we can talk about solutions eventually, but at base, I think these are questions that bring up, you know, why we're motivated to speak the way we do. Um, and, and frankly, it begs, you know, a kind of education that we all have more understanding of what free speech and free expression mean. So David, I have sort of a two-part question for you. So again, in your UN role in particular and throughout your career, you've taken this more global view of the issue. And so clearly here, here's what I struggle with a bit. Every country has its own rules and norms around the issue of speech. But in that lens, a policy that might mean one thing in a democracy can be reversed and used by the government in an autocracy to suppress speech. But yet with these global platforms, they want a one-size-fits-all scalable solution. Clearly, the platforms want to have, you know, kind of generalizable global rules. They operate at scale. For them to have different rules for every environment that they're working in would, would simply be, it'd be complicated. And, and I actually think that on principle, that those rules should be look, if they're based on human rights law principles, basically principles that everyone has the right to seek and receive and impart information and ideas, but also they have rights to protection as well, that those are foundational and that those, those don't vary from culture to culture. I mean, governments will say, you know, you don't really understand our culture and it's different. That's usually a governmental approach it's almost never a civil society approach. It's usually the government that just wants to have control and it, it kind of uh, relies on those, those kinds of arguments. So I think there's a good argument for general rules. The thing is, is that those rules take into account context. They take into account the difference of, of environments around the world. And so, and this is true, not only like as between say little Hanoi in Southern California or little Saigon in Southern California and actual Saigon that there's actually difference, you know, in those places, but it's actually platform to platform. What's incitement on one might be something different, but you have basic rules that might apply and you, you know, you apply them according to what the context might be. The other, I think, positive element to having global rules is that instead of the companies going to a government that says, we want you to take down this content and the content is just critical of government or something like that, then you know the company can say, look, this isn't really about our business uh, interests and our business rules, but we've created rules that reflect the rights that your citizens, that our users enjoy. So I think there's a, a real benefit to, to having those kinds of standards. The flip side of that is that, I mean, as you're alluding to governments, put enormous pressure on the platforms to take down content uh, or to limit the reach of content or you know, get rid of accounts and so forth. And that, I mean, that's real pressure on the companies and the companies don't have many tools to push back against that. At the end of the day, 
the companies absolutely have to observe local law. And they're the ones who have to weigh the proportionality of whether if they stick to their principle and that government actually blocks them so people can't access them at all, what does that evaluation look like? Is that better or worse from the perspective of enabling freedom of expression in a particular environment? This leads to a bit of doubt for me. So like during your role at the UN, and this is where I'm hoping you can help me understand this a little better. Mm-hmm. I've read some of your statements, or I've heard you speak before, of course, that have warned about this possibility of over-moderation and creeping censorship You know, in response to some of the legislative proposals, whether in the US or Canada or elsewhere. So I'm just curious how we can reconcile this trade-off. One, because rules that might apply one way in a democratic regime could, as we just said, could be used by an autocratic regime to censor speech. But also, I, I mean, I spent my entire first half of my career as a global thinker. I was in the foreign policy world. But at the end of the day, each country, again, still has its own issues. And so does that mean, for example, we here in the U.S. need to give up on some potential solutions to protect our citizens here from harmful speech, such as incitements to violence, because other regimes would use any rules we place in a negative way? Like, is there a way to reconcile this? Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. And I, you know, I agree that each government has, I mean, they have the right, I mean, in fact, they have a duty to determine, you know, hopefully through democratic means, what's the appropriate law, what's the appropriate regulatory environment in order to promote human rights values and to protect individuals from harm. Every government has the responsibility to do that. So just to give an example, uh, Germany adopted a a law called NetzDG, NetzDG. And NetzDG, basically it has one good part to it, which is when you get to the regulation part of uh, of your series, I think this is key, which is it enforces transparency by the companies, because what the companies are doing is extremely opaque. It's not actually a perfect transparency model, but in principle, it's a good idea. But at the same time, the German law, NetzDG, says to the companies that you need to ensure that you are moderating content consistent with German law, German law on, on hate speech and so forth. And what happens is basically two things. One is they're giving actual, like a kind of public power to these companies to evaluate German law. So it's, it's strange, right, for say Facebook to be looking at the German law on criminal insult, for example, and say like, well, was this post insulting or not? Should we take it down? If we don't take it down, we're gonna face some significant fines that get into the millions of euros if we don't do this right. So on the one hand, it's, it's kind of transferring what I think of as you know, public government responsibility to a private company to do this. The other part of it that's problematic is by saying to the companies, here's what we want you to take down, and there's not a whole lot of process around it, they're kind of signaling you know, to the authoritarians that you were alluding to before that you know, it's okay if you adopt law that puts pressure on the companies to take down content you don't like. Now, many of those countries, if not most of them, will do that anyway. Um, And so I don't wanna push too hard on the idea that democratic countries like need to always think about what they're modeling to the authoritarian world. But but it's, it's useful to think in those terms because, you know, I think many, many governments uh, and there was a study about this within the last six weeks or so, have actually adopted the, the German model, but used it and they've referred to the German model, even though they're using it as a tool to repress legitimate speech. So, you know, we need to be mindful of that. And I think, again, this is a, a reason why putting human rights standards front and center, which are standards that all governments, even if they have higher standards, like the First Amendment in the United States, at least it creates a baseline that all governments need to observe. And if the companies are pursuing that and pushing that, it puts them in a better position than simply saying, you know, this is just our business decision. I I think the question, Yael, around basically context and rules somehow seems to suggest that as is, there are 
victories in how the platforms are applying rules. And one of my biggest concerns is what I think of as moderation theater. Um, and I've written about it a little bit, but you know, the kind of incisive crackdowns that often bring with them censorship and removal of legitimate speech. And so one of the concerns I have is we can't even get rules right now. You know, how can we appropriately think of nimble international mechanisms that can be applied in various contexts without having not a, a, a useful framework to, to be pulling from. And so if we're not even in a place where um, the moderation and the practices we're using are up to snuff, I, I actually have deep concerns about how we're thinking through, you know, in various situations. I want to talk a bit about the Facebook Oversight Board for a moment. Um, I will start with the disclosure here. Uh, I am part of what some of you might have read about called the Real Facebook Oversight Board, and it's a group of sort of academics, journalists, critics who formed together not because not to counter the Facebook Oversight Board, but ahead of the election because the Oversight Board was not in any way going to be able to operate quickly enough to handle some of the misinformation that was happening before the election. So I am a, I am a critic for a number of reasons. I just wanted to say the full disclosure there. But I do want to chat a bit about this oversight board. So for those in our audience who aren't aware, Facebook created this oversight board. It was a two-year process. They engaged with lots of different actors around the world. In my opinion, though, at the end of the day, it was still a selected board of people by Facebook paid by Facebook, but they will have uh, the purview to look at certain cases where content was taken down, which to me is less dangerous than the content that stays up, and be able to rule on whether or not to overturn Facebook's decision. And those decisions are supposed to be binding. They just ruled on the first five cases. They overturned four of Facebook's five decisions. But none of those decisions will have as much ramification as the Trump deplatforming. And this Facebook Oversight Board is going to rule on that as well. So I wanted to sort of ask you guys, the idea of this international group of people that can potentially overrule Facebook, I want to know what you think about this concept. You know, on the face, there's some really interesting in theory ideas about it, but they're not actually accountable to the public and yet they're they're ruling on when they rule on Trump whether or not he should be deplatformed they are going to rule on something that has incredible consequence well you know i come at this as a lawyer and um i i think what they've done is created a court to self adjudicate issues that the platform seeks to evade accountability around accountability is critical whatever we're doing moving forward like I'm trying to keep some of this foundational. And, and so on the one hand, I think it's great that the platform has tried to consider what accountability would look like, but to create an internal carve out that allows the platform to take on, as you say and point out, the removal cases, not content that stays up, sort of just like begs the question of what's, what's the purpose of it? You know, when I first saw it, I was really troubled that four out of five cases were overturned by, you know, from what Facebook had originally done made me sort of wonder, is that the optics of what the board is sort of seen as and to make sure that there is the appearance of independence of this board, you know, Facebook has discretion to then accept some of these decisions or not. Um, they have a press section of the oversight board, which has embargoed releases, unlike what normal courts do, giving discretion and early access to their rulings so that certain experts can then know about it in advance. I mean, if they're going to be behaving like a court, they should be behaving like a court. My much more overarching concern is what's being baked into this process. And when we look at the legal system, we know that there are social hierarchies built into the law. One of the cases that the Oversight Board just looked at, for example, explicitly references that safety and dignity come above voice. Irrespective of my or your opinion on that decision, that is beginning to rank values and principles, that safety comes before voice. Now, I'm not getting into do I agree with it. I am just saying that there will be this precedent now set where those types of hierarchies get cited to over and over again. This doesn't then have any 
any external oversight or review. And I think that it just begs the question ultimately of, you know, what is happening in the absence of external accountability? I'm extremely concerned about how this will bake in a kind of hierarchy of rights um, and freedoms, which ultimately I think the lowest and most vulnerable rungs of our communities will feel the brunt of whatever those rulings mean. And one of my questions was, do you think there are hierarchies of speech? Like, should Trump get a broader berth than someone without a public profile? Because this is part of what's at play is different people are held to different levels of accountability. And it seems like on social media, there is a hierarchy of speech. But so I know that's not what you just said, but hearing you talk about the hierarchy of sort of priorities. Also, I I hadn't thought about it in that way. David, I would love to hear also a little bit about your thoughts on the board. and, And even with having such an incredibly important say on whether or not Donald Trump should be deplatformed for something that consequential. Again, this is not a group of people. They, they're all impressive. They all have impressive backgrounds, but they're not accountable to the American people. And they are going to essentially rule on a decision that is incredibly consequential for our democracy. So would love to hear your thoughts on the structure and then about the deplatforming a Trump decision in particular. The conversation since the board was created, and especially since the decisions around January 6th, have kind of, and Ben Smith had a column about this in the Times a week or two ago, you know, it kind of infuses this board with a kind of public role. And I want to, I want to disclaim that. I mean, I want to say it's not a court. (laughs) I want to say this is a board that, and look, I'm not hostile to it. It's a it's it's a self-regulation mechanism. It if it's a mechanism that pushes Facebook to adopt rules and to enforce rules in a way that protects the rights of its users and the rights of the public in a very narrow way. I totally agree with the critique that both of you have suggested. It's not it's not like this big free speech court in the sense that it will address what's left up and what's taken down. It's just the one narrow takedown question. And it doesn't get into recommendation systems and algorithms and and business model, like all those things that are really crucial. But at that narrow level of, you know, will it help on that, just in in the context of whether the content moderation rules, the community guidelines are appropriate are consistent with human rights, whether they're doing their job, I don't have a problem with it. I, I, but I don't think we should treat it like a court. It doesn't have any impact on any other platform. I mean, it could in a kind of you know, social and commentary sense have that kind of impact. You know, let's not treat it you know, as a court. Let's treat it as you know, what it is, a self-regulatory mechanism. As far as you know the deplatforming decision around Trump, I mean it's actually I'm glad the board will address it because it really will give us I think an opportunity as observers to see whether this board is serious in its articulation of you know the standards that should apply for a company that has the kind of power that that Facebook has. And for me, this is, I totally get Nora's point, which is really important that, you know, we don't want to see like a new privately determined hierarchy of rights. But, but what I do think we want to see is the board grappling with the question of whether given who Trump was, the role that he played in an environment of disinformation and, you know, culminating in the violence of January 6th, I mean, he was a part of that, and he was probably a linchpin part of that. Did the company have, like, was it appropriate for the company to view that as a form of incitement uh, that it could sanction by deplatforming him, which I don't think is actually permanent. I mean, they should give him, like, as a matter of proportionality, the company could be like Susan Collins and say he's learned his lesson and you know, and, and check it out down the road. Leaving it up to the board basically to decide if he gets to come back or not. I think one thing that concerns me though on the board's decision mm-hmm. is 
they're basing it only on the two posts that Facebook claims are the reasons he was taken down. And if the oversight board, similar to the other five decisions, only looks at those two and judges on that, I think there were much more dangerous posts from Trump much earlier on, like the looters and shooters posts that are not part of what they're adjudicating on. So I just, to I me, like a concern. I, I agree. And also, you know, I don't know if those posts were were really the reason why Facebook deplatformed Trump. You know, it's hard to tell. And so there's two separate questions. Like one is, um, you know, will the oversight board actually go beyond the stated reasons that Facebook put forward? I agree with you, those are pretty weak. I think there was a much broader, and even, even if we don't go back to the looters and shooters, you know, even if we look at, you know, from November 4th onwards, the way in which Trump used the platform to promote, you know, the um, Stop the Steal, which was very much connected to the violence of January 6th. If you see his account in the context of the overall promotion of violence, then, you know, that, that's a lot different than looking at two particular posts. I don't know what the Oversight Board will do on this. I mean, I think, I think they should have a remit that allows them to look more broadly. I, I mean, I think they should, they should push the envelope. I mean, I would, I would love to see a situation where the board reaches a decision that is at odds with, uh, with Facebook's business. You know, like for example, by saying, I'm applauding because now you're speaking my language hundred <laughs> percent. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, to gain some favor here. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think that if if they were to say, for example, not only was this appropriate, and I don't know if they'll, they'll reach that decision, but not only was this appropriate, but moving forward, you've got Modi in India, you have Bolsonaro in Brazil, you have you know, dozens of other public figures who are using your platform to incite violence, hatred, discrimination, and so forth. What are you gonna do about those? You need to have rules and, and not only have rules, but you need to have a system for evaluating the context everywhere. We, you can't just leave it for, well, this great big high profile case in the United States, you know, that everybody could, could evaluate. Well, there's a lot of people who are being harmed by the platform, by, by content the platform hosts in places that, you know, frankly, the platform doesn't have much insight into. I could go on and on, but I realize we have an audience here. So I'm looking first at Mario's question here. Mario asks, how do you feel about the role of friction? And I think it's really interesting. Does friction being built into the system, does that count as censorship? Um, the wave says it is, does it count as censorship to make some proof of work required to have full access to participate? I'm assuming in bit like when Twitter tried to experiment a bit with friction by before you could retweet something, you had to consider adding context. Um, he writes, for example, not being able to share or comment on something unless you actually read it first. So do you think the friction being built in by platforms actually in a way could harm speech or what, do either of you are welcome to this question if you have ideas on this one. I'll jump in. I have, um, you know, pretty strong feelings. I, I am very much in support of measures that would slow people down online, friction being one of them. Um, you know, Facebook some time ago introduced its framework uh, around thinking that content might need to be removed, reduced, or we inform users. That is their pithy way of describing uh, various measures they can take. But I've long thought that part of what is missing in the conversation around tech and policy and sort of the free speech issues online are how users are empowered to make sense of their experience. And a big piece of our work at PEN America is actually working on media literacy. And I think the future of the work uh, is helping platforms to inform and provide educative measures for users. So that, um, you know, a great example is when Twitter launched its first labeling scheme, um, the media, I think, had a really missed opportunity in describing it as a warning label. 
it's not a warning label. It's educative. It informs users of things when content might be misleading. Wikipedia is now considering some of this, of course, as we know, and TikTok. And, you know, there are various measures around how we, we think about the, these, these measures. I'm absolutely in favor. So much behavioral science has found that people are more thoughtful when they are given the opportunity to slow down, that when they are told now that there may be reasons to question the veracity or credibility of something that they're seeing, that they actually might take time to question it. It's not going to be the silver bullet, but it is one piece of how we imagine a more healthy experience online. Uh, we have a question here from Francesco in Italy. The, the top part of the question, I think, is such an interesting way of looking at it. What is more risky? He writes, what is your more risky in your point of view between over-censorship on the internet and the spread of hate speech online? I'm going to answer this by saying something that nobody likes to hear in an answer, which is it depends. <laughs> and and, and I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain. Yeah, Nora and I are lawyers. We're, we're always going to love it. That's it our depends. answer. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's why I think it depends. It depends because the, because the platforms are global, the different environments where they're available mean that there are different problems, right? And so, so for example, if you're in, um, if you're in Italy where the spread of hate speech online is really serious, just as it was, you know, if you look at Germany, particularly and actually, this is across Europe, starting in 2015, when there started to be, you know, the um, the increase in migration and refugees coming into Europe. That coincided with kind of the rapid uptake of, of Facebook, but also, you know, significant use by hateful users, let's say, of the platform. And so, and this was actually the initiation time for for the German law. So, what what I would say is. In that environment, you know, both government and the platforms had a real responsibility to evaluate whether the rules were meeting the needs of protecting migrants, protecting individuals from the kind of harm that was being generated on the platform. But that, that also meant that in democratic societies, so in Italy, in Germany, what it meant is they should adopt rules right, that are consistent with their human rights obligations. And so adopt rules that are very clear about the definition of hate speech, which is notoriously undefined, both in international law and generally in domestic law around the world. So narrowly define it, narrowly define when the state can demand that a company, you know, say take down particular content or, you know, sanction individuals for particular speech. And, and make sure that that's a part of public process so that those in the state that are imposing these rules are also accountable for the, impl the imposition of those rules. If you have all of that happening, if that's taking place, then I'm less concerned about over-censorship. The problem is that, I mean, I think as Francesco's question, I think highlights, it's, it's kind of rare for states to adopt hate speech rules that don't fall into the trap of over-censorship. So I, I mean, I don't wanna say I'm like more concerned about one than the other, but I do wanna say that as we look at how rules are adopted by governments from place to place, we need to be demanding, not that they're balancing rights or creating hierarchies of rights, but, they're, but we force them to demonstrate for every takedown, for every law, for every restriction, they, they demonstrate the necessity of taking that action. Unfortunately, they're usually claiming vast discretion to do it without any oversight. So there's a bunch of questions that I know we're not gonna get to. I, I, I see a few questions that talk about checks and balances and regulation. And um, there are a few about the Facebook board and their composition, all of that is online. I will say that the, the Facebook oversight board is more diverse than some other <laughs> ruling and governing bodies. So, so that's a positive. I'm gonna come back to those questions if we have time, but I wanted to ask, Listen, we have, again, a community of builders here who are trying to think about some of the things they're building. And so I sort of have two questions. I would love to hear your thoughts, since I know a lot of people are thinking about these things, of anonymity online. Well, I'll, I'll jump in because of time and I'll keep it short. 
I work with targets of online abuse and it's really hard to talk with them and say, there's no avenue of accountability for you because the person or group of people targeting you are anonymous. So legally we have no way to hold them accountable beyond what the platforms can do. At the same time, I, I would agree then with, I haven't seen David's writing on this, but that there is a fundamental, um, you know, free expression and first amendment right actually to be anonymous. The First Amendment has said that, case law has said that. So there's a tension here where we, we have to consider what are the harms of anonymity stacked up against the benefits. And um, I have literally no easy answer. Why are humans hateful is one of the questions I ask myself every day. Why, when uh, given the opportunity to be anonymous online, are people spouting vitriol? And I think that it isn't going to be a platform answer is the real truth. Um, I'm sorry if that punts some of the question, but I ultimately think it isn't. There was an easy answer. We wouldn't have to have an entire panel to discuss these questions. I'm like, how can I answer this in two minutes, Yael? David, I am going to give you a quick minute because then I want to, I have a uh, wrap up question for each of you. No, I I mean, look, I I believe strongly in anonymity and I've opposed things like the real name requirements on Facebook. Um, mainly because of what I've seen in terms of the use of real names in order to limit uh, the speech of activists, of, you know, particularly of people, and this is particularly true for young people in repressive or closed societies who are trying to learn, you know, about their sexuality or orientation or, or whatever it might be. So I really believe strongly in anonymity. And on the flip side of that, I I have not seen really great evidence that anonymity is the problem that's driving um, hate um, and incitement online. Really quite often the real uh, problems are the identifiable uh, accounts, the named accounts, and the fact that the companies aren't taking the right steps against uh, hateful accounts. So I'm very wary of moving to a a position of like, let's do away with anonymity, given the, the real value that anonymity has had like on, on political sides, but also on you know basic human development. I was in one of those debates when I was working at Facebook and had there were really it, about a certain post and how it was anonymous. And this is one where <laughs> there's no good answer. I see the arguments on both sides of this. So don't worry, it's not just lawyers that can give that sort of wishy-washy. <laughs> um, so listen, I would love to wrap up with this final question for each of you, specifically for the startup members of our community and the investors, you know, as they're building their products in their hopes of fixing the internet, which is the core of the Beta Lab program, what takeaway about free speech, free expression, do you really want them to keep in mind as they are building their product? I, I think free speech is one of the many values and principles that we have to consider online um, and that civil rights and equity are others that when we're measuring, you know, what are the risks associated? How can we mitigate harm? I would urge over and over again that entrepreneurs, innovators, product developers, um, that you think about what those different tensions are and what is the most useful, most expansive product that can help mitigate harm. Um, My favorite thing about product people is that they put people first. Um, which frankly, as a civil rights lawyer, I always have, I believe strongly in people power. And I love the idea of building things for people. So from base, I, I love coming to a conversation with all of you. And I think that, um, you know, part of what you have to understand is we're not going to automate ourselves out of the problems online. So it comes down to having interdisciplinary conversations about those different principles and the tensions of how do we rank them and how do we make sure that the most is still available for the most people with the least harm. Can I, right before we go to you, David, because I feel like I didn't answer enough of the questions. um, Richard actually asked, why not distinguish anonymous named and verified IDs? So before we go to David, that's the sort of, I'm going back to the previous question because we do still have a minute. Is, is that, is there a possibility there of maybe distinguishing between anonymous named and verified IDs? I mean, we don't need to necessarily answer that, but the right now, but there's, maybe there's different ways to think about 
Um, I mean, I guess in a way it is, it is distinguished if it's anonymous because you see that the person is anonymous, but on the back end, the question is if they're verified or not, maybe that's mm-hmm. really a question. All right. I think that's, that's right. I think that's, look, I mean, the, the companies have just a, a real, uh, you know, significant pool of tools that they can draw from to deal with the harms. And, and so I guess in answering your, your kind of final question, this is my, my pivot. I mean, I think that we need to be, and, and this is a, a great agenda for startups, is to, to really identify what are those other tools? Like what are the ways, look, sort of the foundational, let's say the original sin of social media is its extensive reliance, its deep reliance on emotion as you know, the coin, right? Whether it's attention, but it's it's the like and dislike and all of that. And you know, I still have hope that that social media and search can be of real value to people, and that there are a lot of products out there that have yet to been developed that could really, instead of using the tool of of the emotion, use the tool of of stimulation, of intellectual debate, you know, frankly, I think what Nora was talking about before in, in terms of the question around friction is, is like a late attempt to do that and to imagine a platform or a product that from the ground up isn't built around the kind of focus on emotion, but is built around the individual's access to information, individual autonomy, the ability to shape, like to create your own algorithm, essentially, so that you can design you know, what you wanna see and have more control over that. I mean, there are problems there. I mean, there's still the filter bubble and all that kind of stuff. But I think that that move is like the long-term move that I think is, is gonna be the move that is most appropriate for you know, platforms that wanna be protective and promoting of freedom of expression and other human rights. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, I'm so thankful to both of you for spending this time with us. Thank you, everyone. It was such a pleasure and uh, enjoy your weekend. You too. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, everyone. That's it for this week's Sunday show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, Chris Sapone, Yael Eisenstadt, David Kay, and Nora Benavidez, and the team at Betaworks Studios and Beta Lab, including Danica Laschuk. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. Tech Policy Press.